Western civilization has a practical and efficient but hopelessly incomplete worldview. Committed as Western culture is to a metaphysically naive vision defined by materialism, matter is all that exists, and contextualism, no human experience can transcend the limitations of place and time, of ethnic, racial, and religious background, of personal history, and so on, we are essentially locked in and chained down to a worldview that does not seriously question itself. That, by definition, cannot question itself. How, after all, can one have an experience beyond matter in a world that claims that there is nothing outside of matter? And how can one step out of a worldview that says one cannot step out of a worldview? Hence, these sort of paranormal experiences, which violate both our materialism and our contextualism, can only elude our grasp and frustrate our cognitively primitive attempts to understand them. You can't get there from here without a shift in our worldview. A worldview that contains a we're here and you're there sense of separateness, in which the physical world is all that exists. In other words, you can't deal with something such as the alien abduction phenomenon that is so shattering to our literalist, materialist worldview and then try to understand it from a literalist, materialistic worldview. You can't think yourself out of the story you're caught in with the rules and elements of the very story in which you're caught. You need a new story and new cognitive tools. You need an intervention from the outside, even if this outside turns out to be a deep inside. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Bowles and this is 42 Minutes, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. A production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Monday, October 23rd, 2017, and today we're going to take another look at science fiction, superhero comics, and the paranormal with our favorite guest, author and academic scholar Jeffrey Kripal. Kripal holds the J. Newton Razor Chair in Philosophy and Religious Thought at Rice University and is the author of seven books, most of which we've discussed here. Most recently, he published in collaboration with... <laughs> Charlie. You a friend there. Yeah. <laughs> most recently... Most recently, he published in collaboration with Whitley Struber, The Supernatural, A New Vision of the Unexplained. Today, we are going to revisit his 2011 masterwork, Mutants and Mystics, published by the University of Chicago Press. If you've never read this book, you really need to get a hold of it now. How are you doing today, Jeff? Hey, Doug. I'm well. I'm a happy Monday. Happy Monday. Yeah. Well, so an, it, originally we had scheduled this discussion here for much much earlier uh what have you been up to well we've been up to a lot of flooding here in houston for one thing uh that really kind of set us all back i kind of pretty much lost september um and then you know just kind of restarting the school year and um just kind of getting getting our feet back back undressed so well so then since we're let's just stay in the material world was your 
personal house, was it flooded? And what about the university itself? No, we were among the fortunate. There's about one out of every three homes in Houston were, was flooded. Uh, but that means, of course, two out of three were not. So we were among the latter statistic. And the university did take some damage, but nothing catastrophic like like a lot of people receive. So, But, you know, it's a, a lot of us are suffering from survivor's guilt now. It's it's just emotionally hard to deal with all the, the trauma and the physical loss that surrounds one. And what about the actual storm itself? Was that something... Was it more of the the aftermath, or you know what was that? Well, like? the the actual hurricane hit south of here. Um, Houston took the a- aftermath of it as it moved up the coast, and we received about fifty one inches of rain over a, about a three day period. And there's just you know the system couldn't simply couldn't take that much. Um, but the the hurricane itself wasn't the issue. The the winds were were not the problem. It was it was the rain. And then would you say that for the most part life is resumed to normal, or do you think that yeah. would take? Yeah, I mean it depends on where you're at, of course. But you know, if you drive around Houston, you you don't you wouldn't know, you know, unless you went into these you know hundred thousand plus homes and and saw all the walls and flooring ripped up. So. And it's you know it was mostly first floors of the homes were destroyed, uh, but occasionally that was the entire home. So it just depends it depends on what neighborhood you're in and you know where you're looking. Hmm. It's been... I don't mean to begin on a bummer note, but <laughs> you asked me you asked me why we didn't do this earlier, and that was a big reason why. Huh. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, it's kind of a confluence of things happened. I definitely wanted to return to mutants and mystics because there was a twin peaks book that came out earlier or maybe it was last fall but it it felt like he was definitely uh taking advantage of some of your research to tell an interesting story it was definitely fiction but then um so that prompted me to want to revisit mutants and mystics but about the same time there was this essay that came out about uh, where we were in America, historically speaking. So with Trump in office and the author of that essay, which became a book, was, he called it Fantasyland. And so it was, how did we get here? And he kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater. I'm just, um, right. that was a, the starting point for me. But it was an interesting confluence of things all coming together. Yeah. Did you did you happen to look into that book at all, or? I did. I of course, I read the Atlantic piece, which summarizes, which I take summarizes the book. The author's a gentleman named Kurt Anderson, and I I read the the uh, synopsis in Atlantic Monthly. I, I've not read the book, um, but you know I have my own thoughts about it. What I at least at what I read in Atlantic Monthly. All right. So uh, if, if the listeners haven't aren't aware of this, basically. To contend with, I mean, this is what's so fascinating, where, you know, the kind of stuff that you postulate where authors are kind of writing the paranormal that's writing us. And when I see someone like Trump, it's, it's, that's exactly it. Because, you know, uh, I think Zemeckis kind of created his Biff character by, you know, taking Trump's archetype and extending that into the, into the future and wondering what a Trump type 
you know role would be in a in mm -hmm. a large yeah. sort of way and so yeah it it's interesting like that idea to me that we have <laughs> we have what you're talking about in mutes and mystics kind of playing out in reality but so kurt anderson argues that the only way to combat this is with more logic that we need less squishy thinking is what he says and more more rationality yeah i mean it's a where there's an abyss here because of course when you write about the paranormal it, you let's say you're writing about magic let's let's say good old traditional magic you know most magic traditionally is in fact black magic it's it's designed to do harm to others and to um, take resources from one group for another or or to hunt or to go to war or something there's nothing there's nothing innately good or moral about magical practice it's it's about human nature much of which is violent and selfish and quite ugly and you see the same things with paranormal phenomena it's not all about peace and light and immortality it's just as often about terror and darkness and violence and trauma so i think we have to struggle with this the 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 anderson argument in the atlantic monthly is complicated and there are parts of it that i have very little trouble with and there are other parts that i have very big problems with you know his his argument is essentially if i can paraphrase it that that it's really the counterculture and in particularly the new age and then parts of the academy, parts of the postmodern academy who eroded this notion of truth or facts, and then the the far right picked up on that and carried Trump into the White House on that dismissal of facts and relativism and the notion you can create your own reality. I mean, that's essentially the argument. Is that, does that sound fair? Yeah, that sounds fair. I mean, so yeah. it's, it, it's interesting because I, I think from a logical perspective, like standpoint it seems like the logic is sound but it it just creates such a well like an inhuman world i guess the problem there's a lot of problems with the argument you know he wants to lay the blame at the feet of the counterculture and the hippies and and even esalen institute which is another place i work and know a great deal about but in fact none of that stuff was invented then and the real dismissal of facts and science and professional knowledge did, has nothing to do with the counterculture it actually goes back to the 19 teens and the rise of fundamentalism in the u.s which was really about rejecting two forms of professional knowledge one was biblical studies or the study of the bible and the other was evolutionary biology and so when Christian fundamentalism arose in the 19-teens. Those were the two forms of professional knowledge it attempted to essentially call fake news. And that's the real origin point of this dismissal of knowledge. It, it has really very little, if anything, to do with the counterculture or the New Age movement. Um, although, of course, you can find elements of it there as well. So I think it's just a bad historical argument. And I also think the kind of hyper-rationalism that, that Mr. Anderson is pushing simply isn't faithful or true to human nature. I mean, things happen to us all the time that are not rational. And a lot of the things that he describes as fantasy are, are in fact, you know, ha in fact happen all the time. 
Uh, it doesn't mean they're factual or real in the sense of the chair or the rock is real, but it, it certainly means they're not just fantasy. So I think he, you know, he's, he makes a number of stumbles in a number of places, but his frustration with the present moment, of course, is quite genuine. And the dismissal of all professional knowledge is, you know, of course, I, I share his, his, his dismay over that, but I certainly wouldn't blame the people and movements he blames. I think he's blaming the wrong people. Yeah, I read his whole book, and and he definitely does uh, do a fair spend a fair amount of time with fundamentalists. Also, there's just it, it seems like we're we're storytelling creatures, and yeah, and narrative is is part of how our psychology works. I don't know how we. Like I think on a on a previous podcast you you mentioned how how robust our our myth mythological being is in pop culture that we do have a good sense of um like a mythological underpinning but that only exists in that in that um arena that yeah we allow it if it's fictional but we don't allow it if it migrates out of pure fiction or fantasy you know, so it's okay if it's fantasy or entertainment, but it's not okay if we're trying to treat paranormal phenomena as actually happening or as, as real in some sense. Which kind of leads me to an interesting thing. Did you happen to see Jim Carrey's most recent behavior? No. Uh-uh. So he was at Fashion Week and he was acting bizarre. And, and then someone, a pretty interesting someone, interpreted his behavior as... You know, what if he was having a, like a theophany or that he was actually, so like that's the, the, that was the curious thing to me that if, if, if we did actually come into contact with someone who was having this transcendent moment that was beyond our normal consciousness, that his, you know, that he was so like a, a, a revelation, you know, could we, right. could we have, it, I mean, what, what would our what do you think we would do to that as a a culture? We, would we dismiss it? Could we deal with it? Well, we know what happens historically. Of course, when people receive revelations or have these experiences, they're generally persecuted or or at best ignored and dismissed. And those individuals who are successful in gathering people around them and getting others to believe in or accept whatever it is they're receiving or seeing, you know, those become, of course, religions. But but historically, almost all religions begin as little persecuted or marginal communities. So, I, I mean, I, I by definition, almost, a new revelation or a new religious experience or, or hierophany is, by definition, marginal and likely to be rejected. Um, so I think that's what would happen. I didn't see the carry phenomena you're talking about. So I I don't have a read of it. It was kind of interesting in that because he's an actor, he he was able to extrapolate that these these different roles that he was putting on was the same as the role that he plays his egoic role. Uh-huh. And so that he could see beyond the egoic role and touch the transcendent source, which is, you know, the thoughts that are happening, you know, the, the, just the, the being that is underneath all of the, the masks. 
Right. Well, I mean, it's an old it's an old message or an old story that we're all acting. That you know, the I mean, the word person comes from the Latin for mask, and um, you know, all of us go through our days acting various roles. I mean, I relate to my family differently than I relate to, relate to my students, and I relate to them differently than I relate to my colleagues, and I'm relating to you differently again. So we we are, we're, we're constantly putting on and off and taking off different masks, none of which we really are, but we pretend we're those people for the for the time being. So acting actually is a very powerful way of realizing the relativity of one's personality and one's ego, right? Because that's their job, is to put on and take off different personalities. And you don't have to do that for very long to realize that you know every pretty much every personality is a mask. I think you even, in, in Mutants and Mystics, when you're talking about, in, in the Philip K. Dick section, how we can't always be Superman, that Superman is this element of his self, but normal everyday existence requires more of a, a Clark Kent mask. Yeah, that's actually Alan, Alvin Schwartz. That's uh, the section on Alvin Schwartz, who was one of the writers that, for the Superman and Batman strips in the 50s. And that was Alvin's main main message, that actually most of our lives are in the Clark Kent mode, and the, the Superman mode is something that's rare, and that you know comes in out of the sky when we need it, but for the most part we we're 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 Clark. We're not we're not Superman. And and so that kind of made me think about how with science it seems like and this gets into the same kind of spiritual thing too though we live in the classical or in the world of classical physics where there's certainty and causality. Uh-huh. But it seems like physicists understand that that's not the ultimate truth the ultimate truth is this quantum reality which is is less certain and i wonder if that isn't kind of that that space between uh, yeah. you so clark kent clark kent is newtonian and and superman's quantum is that where you're going yeah yeah that's what alvin thought by the way you know he's no longer with us but that's pretty much what he thought i you know look we because we have bodies and in some sense we are bodies and we run into things and bounce off things and eat things and kill things and use things we we assume a newtonian physics you know this this sort of hard reality that works through cause and effect and and where something is either this or it's that but it's never both and mm-hmm. um but if you're in a quantum world, you're you're dealing with wave functions that, in fact, by definition, are both and, uh, and they're not material. They're, they have no material existence until that wave function collapses and is observed as such. So, the quantum the quantum world has this both and uh, feature to it, and it's entirely invisible and it's not material. Where the Newtonian world is visible and material and it's it's an either or logic not a both and logic so i think there's something to that and you know normally when we talk about quantum physics of course we're not quantum physicists and so we're really talking about something we ultimately don't know about Mm -hmm. but but i do think i know that a lot of quantum physicists wrote books 
to try to communicate to the lay audience what the implications of quantum physics are. And this is what they said. So I don't know why as thinking human beings we can't listen to them and take them at their word and, and follow through on those implications, which are really quite profound, um, as, you, as, you, as you just pointed out. Yeah, and then at some point they start to kind of undermine that, that rationalism that Kurt Anderson is seeking. You know, there's something... <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I... I don't know how long we want to talk about Anderson because, again, I haven't read the book. You have, but it, but he's definitely operating with a Newtonian physics and a logic where something is always either this or that, but it's never both this and that. And and of course, the people he's he's deriding or making fun of are very much in the both and camp. So I think it's, you know, when I read the the Atlantic piece, it was it it struck me very much as kind of the left hemisphere of the brain. Uh, mocking and making fun of the right hemisphere of the brain. It seemed it seemed one-sided and and dogmatic in a way that was just unfair and and not reflective of our full human nature. Speaking of both and, uh, I think one of the so in in a recent article that you just wrote, you're writing about Madonna the UFO, and I uh -huh. think in Mutants and Mystics also. Uh, you quote how until we can study or Jacques Vallée saying that, you know, we really can't get a sense of what's going on with these interesting anomalies in the art until we start looking at it from both perspectives. You know, there's this historical perspective, I think, that you talk about and also um, a mystical experience kind of thing. So we we either want to understand it from you know, our, our present moment and say, oh, this is clearly a UFO or, you know, this is this is an emanation of the Holy Spirit or something like that. But uh, what is a techno-mystical comparison kind of thing? Well, yeah, you're referring, there's a little, it's called the, the Madonna dell'Ufo or the Madonna of the UFO. It, it's, it's based on a trip I, I took, I visited Florence a few years ago and was walking through the museums like any other tourist and encountered this very strange painting uh, uh, of the Virgin with um, baby Jesus and John the Baptist as a baby. And and behind them on the horizon is essentially a virtually perfect kind of classic UFO with the, a shepherd and his dog looking up at it. And uh, the Virgin herself doesn't see it. She's looking the other way. And... Um, I mean, it's quite striking, and it's very difficult to look at this painting and not think that the painter saw a UFO in the sky and painted it in the 16th century. And uh, I begin the essay observing that when I was asking, I was actually looking for the painting. I knew it was in the museum. And so I first person I asked was this female curator who got this huge smile on her face and said, you know, in, in Italian, ah, um, La Madonna dell'Ufo, you know, the Madonna of the UFO. And so she was very happy to direct me to it. And as I walked through the building and got closer, I asked another uh, museum um, employee who happened to be a male. And, you know, he, he got really kind of um, snarky with me and pointed to the right hallway, but said, you know, of course it's not a UFO. It's just a image of the Holy Spirit. And um, 
so I begin the essay talking about those two views, you know, the female curator and the male curator and, and how we might read those. And, you know, the, my basic point was that, yes, as an art historian, you can say, well, this is an image of, of the Holy Spirit. But, but in fact, it's not. It's a very odd image of the Holy Spirit. The Virgin's not even looking at the Holy Spirit. And, you know, you can say it, it, it's based on some art historical referent. But what's never asked is, well, maybe the art historical reference themselves are based on some experience, some, something that someone saw in the sky. Who, who's to say? It, it, it's just this reductive, knee-jerk, reaction that that doesn't really explain anything but but just affirms our own materialist worldview um and so i'm just it's just a little essay reflecting on this painting and and how difficult it is to see and not not think that these things come come out of space and out of time and just show up anywhere they want um, because it looks exactly like a modern ufo in the sky and in Mutants and Mystics, so when when is the first instance of this in the United States? Well, that's a good question. I mean, you know, we don't get the language of the UFO until 1952 when the military invents the acronym. Um, we get the phrase flying saucer on June 24, 1947, when Ken Arnold reports these things he saw over Washington State. But, you know, people have been seeing lights and machine-like things in the sky for decades or centuries or millennia. It, it, there is no beginning to it. it. We can see this as far as we look back, but we can t definitely trace the language and how the, the mythology develops. And of course, the mythology that develops in the 20th century is intimately linked to the U.S. military and has a kind of Cold War paranoia at its core. It's about invasion, you know, and uh, the UFO is something that we have to protect ourselves against. Where, whereas in the the painting in Florence in the 16th century, <laughs> the UFO is somehow religious, and there's no need to protect ourselves against it at all. You, in fact, you look up at it and wonder. You don't, you don't fear it. So, so it, the the invasion mythologies of, you know, that we're st still with us in the theater is. Um, very much a, a product of our of the Cold War and of our own political paranoia. I don't think it's internal or or innate to the phenomenon itself. Now, there's a book that you you talk about that I think each time I, I go through Mutants and Mystics, I think this is something that I really need to explore more deeply. But it it's actually a little earlier, but I'm I'm, con, I'm con, might be confusing it. Uh, so there's uh, the Eddie Dorpa. Oh yeah, yeah. But then um, it, there's another, the Butler, the Coming Race. Yeah. Could yeah. you talk a little bit about both of those so I can get them straight in my head? Well, yeah. Um, I'm drawing a total blank on the author of the Coming Race. I have it here. I can look it up for you. But, but Eddie Dorpa, I can start there. Uh, Oh, it's it's Bulwer Lytton. Um, so the first one is called The Coming Race, and it's it's by a, um, an author named Bulwer Lytton who was writing in the 19th century. Um, and it's kind of um, it's an early kind of science fiction novel that kind of weaves a kind of Darwinian evolutionary scheme into a 
you know, a race that's 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 from the future, as it were, in some sense, where Eddie Dorpa is this wonderful, wonderful hollow earth novel that appears towards the end of the 19th century. And it's written by a man who was essentially a pharmacist, uh, sold pharmaceuticals. And um, th- it's about this man who's exploring in Kentucky and he meets this being without eyes who's very who's small uh, and looks pretty much like an alien. The, the thing is illustrated, beautifully illustrated. And he runs into this alien without eyes who leads him down into this cave and down into the middle of the earth, which turns out to be hollow. And he encounters all of these teachings there from these, these beings there, which are very, very similar to what will appear later in the 20th and 21st century when people encounter UFOs. And... Um, Eddie Dorpa is Aphrodite spelled backwards. And uh, the novel also has a kind of suppressed psychedelic subtext. It's it's hard to believe that the author wasn't um, ingesting something, you know, from his ph- pharmaceutical um, library when he when he wrote this novel. But it, it it's interesting because it it foretells and kind of flags a lot of the themes that will appear later in the in the 20th century. I think you say the same thing about uh, Jack Kirby. That Jack Kirby was doing psychedelic things without I mean he was somehow communicating the moment this kind of countercultural psychedelic moment through his art. Right. We we actually don't know if at least I don't know if Kirby had ingested any psychedelics. Chris Knowles is the the real eloquent writer there. And, you know, he sort of plays with this idea. I don't think we have any solid historical evidence of that, although it would have been, of course, very easy and common to do in the 60s. And if you look at Kirby's art, it does it does make this radical shift somewhere in the mid, mid-1960s and becomes, you know, kind of wildly psychedelic and, and interdimensional. Um, so, you know, it's it's just it's a thought. It's not something we know for sure. One of the things that I I continually return to is this idea of Rosicrucianism. Uh-huh. And I think that informed one of those books that we were talking about, whether it was the The Coming Race or Eddie Dorpa. Could you speak about that a little bit? Well, yeah, I mean, it's been a while since I read that literature, but Rosicrucianism is a, a kind of esoteric movement that arises in the 17th and 18th century. And the basic idea was is that they were, there were these esoteric masters who, who, who had these special teachings who would reveal them only to special initiates. Um, but what's interesting about Rosicrucianism is it was almost certainly invented. It was it was sort of one of these religious traditions that were, you know, made up as it were through the composition of a few documents that were then carefully kind of spread around Europe. Um so it had a it had a sense of a of religion that was self-consciously made up and yet, you know, its teachings are had resonances to to various mystical forms of Christianity that may not have been made up at all. So the, it raises the question of what is the proper medium or genre of teaching secret, you know, secret mystical things? Is 
is fiction or, or popular culture or a comic book or science fiction maybe your best medium? Um, and Rosicrucianism looks like a kind of early version of that where you're communicating a set of spiritual teachings through a text that, that in some sense is, 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 is fictional. And I think that's why I always... I mean, so the literal truth of the thing, or maybe it's not... So if you get wrapped up in the idea that it's it's not real, it diminishes what it is because right. you can't... I mean, whether or not it's, it's uh, you know, something... The truth of the thing isn't diminished by the fact that it's it doesn't have the historical lineage that it claims that it does. Right. Right. And this, you know, this is kind of a function. We've lost any sense of the symbolic or the mythical where, you know, there are some truths that, that can only be communicated through a story uh, or through an image that isn't literally true, but nevertheless communicates that truth. And uh, the, you know, the best analogy I always give is the dream. You know, when we have a special dream that, that we know is trying to communicate something to us, we don't wake up and think that the dream is the literal truth that was being communicated. We, we recognize that the dream is, is, is coded. It's, it's speaking in symbols or speaking in, in code, and we have to somehow decode that to get to the message. And uh, that's how a lot of religious texts work. You know, they're not, they certainly are interpreted literally, but, but that's hard for us to do today because we just, we're not in that mode. We, we don't, we don't think that way anymore. You know, or a near, or a near death experience is another good example. I mean, people have near death experiences that they know are, are, are real in some sense, but they're always coded in highly symbolic images and, and, and stories. That makes me wonder whether or not most religious traditions come out of a literary milieu, I guess, or if there is actually... So in college, I took a, a really interesting class. It was a, like King Arthur literature, you know, and we traced the historical records back to, you know, just back to this, this reference of like a battle chief and something. But the the character itself kind of who knows where it really came from and whether or not so like historically there was some kind of literal person but whether or not that person was you know merely the skeleton that the, all the mythology is attached to it doesn't matter because the you know the what the the character's pointing to is so much greater than the the literal right truth. The, right the, the, whether or not there was someone like king arthur actually king arthur is the product of centuries of, of cultural development and imagination and storytelling. Right. Yeah. And, but so I'm wondering how often is it a religious tradition has a historical teacher that's commanding the multitudes or if that do you think is a product of, you know, the literary tradition or is, do you have any, do you know of any? Well, I think it's usually both, you know. I mean, in the history of Christianity, we, we make this cut between the historical Jesus and, and the Christ of faith. And so all kinds of things are said and believed and experienced about Christ in the history of Christianity. But, in fact, the historical Jesus probably would have found most of that stuff bizarre uh, and, and wouldn't know what to make of it. Um, 
it doesn't mean the historical Jesus didn't exist or wasn't profound or, or fascinating or anomalous in his own right. It just means that as the tradition develops, it wraps more and more stories and more and more different interpretations around the historical figure. And, and that's the case with any religion. It's not just, it's not just Christianity. Uh, I mean, if you've ever studied Buddhism, you know that <laughs> there are many, many Buddhas and uh, many, many different understandings of, of who the Buddha was. Um, so that's just a, it's just a common process in the history of religions. Philip K. Dick, you know, he had his revelation, and then it seems like he wrote about it for the next eight years to try and come to terms with the revelation. Right, but he did that in his journals, and in fact, he never came to terms with it because it could never be described. It could only be, you know, orbited around. And the last three novels that he wrote were, you know, essentially fictional attempts to deal with the facts of, of his experience. But, you know, they weren't his experience. They, were, they, were, they couldn't be translated one-to-one. He was a writer, so he... You know, he took these extraordinary experiences and translated them into into stories. Uh, and then in his journals, of course, he was much more prosaic or, or descriptive, but he never really landed on what Vallis was or is. Mm. I'm, I'm curious, uh, I don't think I've ever seen you write about Robert Anton Wilson, which is one uh, character that a lot of people compare to Philip K. Dick, and they had similar circumstances. You know, I don't I don't write about him because I don't know anything about him. I know who, I know who he is, of course. Um, Eric Davis uh, is writing about Robert Anton Wilson and Philip K. Dick, um, but but Eric's still working on that book, so he will have to wait to see. Yeah, you know what Eric says, but he'd be the person to to ask that question too. Well, so then what what are you working on these days? Do you think, or you know, is it? That more of the UFO experience. Well, so I've got I've got two things, at least two things in the works. One is a big memoir or manifesto that comes out this week, actually. Oh, really? Um, yeah, yeah. It's called Secret Body, and uh, it's it's a it's a memoir in the sense that I tell my whole life story in it, but it's a manifesto in that it anthologizes different little essays I've written over the years to try to explain why I wrote this book or that book or this book. So it's it's sort of the book of all my books. There's 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 six books now. Mutants and Mystics was the actually was the sixth one. Um and Secret Body is the seventh book that tries to explain all of those earlier six books and tie them all together into kind of a, a single vision. So so there's that, but that's out. I'll be out this actually this week. And then I'm working on a book, another book with a, a woman here in Houston named Elizabeth Crone called Changed in a Flash, um, which is about her near-death experience when she was struck by lightning back in 1988. And um, she has a lot of extraordinary um, uh, capacities that develop after the lightning strike that are essentially superpowers, and she's drawn in particular to science fiction as a way of expressing what happened to her. So the book's very much about science fiction and um, the, the, you know, the paranormal again, but, but now through the prism of, of Elizabeth's near-death experience. And when will that one be coming out? Probably next fall. Or, yeah, probably next October. 
And then I'm curious, did her superpowers diminish over time as her apparatus becomes, her filters become thicker again? Not really. Not really. No, she, she does things like she sees auras around bodies and she dreams about plane crashes and natural disasters. And that, I mean, it kind of comes and goes, but it hasn't really declined with age as far as I can tell. Uh, you know, the lightning strike was almost 30 years ago now. Hmm. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Yeah, no, it's always fun, Doug. I'm always happy to be here, and um, I hope you have me back, and um, I'm, always, I'm always honored. You bet. You've been listening to Jeffrey Kripal on 42 Minutes, production of SickBook Radio on thesinkbook.com. Uh, we'll link to his work and definitely the new book, Secret Body. For more information about The Sync Book, our guests, check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast, check out others as currently all The Sync Book radio archives are free. We also feature a great search engine to help you find what you need. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Thanks so much. And underneath all of the names, there is only one immortal man, and we are that man.
a little ghost for the offering. Yeah, 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 yeah. Here's a truck stop instead of St. Peter's. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mr. Andy Coffin's gone wrestling. Andy, did you hear about this one?